welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Public Discourse, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. We are very pleased to be back after a little summer break. With this discussion, we begin a series of episodes on the theme of American identity and culture. In the coming months, we'll be discussing Albert Murray's South to a Very Old Place, William Alexander Percy's Lanterns on the Levee, George Schuyler's novel Black No More, and Norman Podhoretz's Making It. We begin today with two essays by Ralph Ellison, The Little Man at Chihaw Station, and What America Would Be Like Without Blacks. Both essays were published in a 1986 collection called Going to the Territory, and they can also be found in the Modern Library's Collect Essays of Ralph Ellison. I'm very pleased to welcome two distinguished scholars to the podcast for this discussion about one of the greatest American writers and someone who wrote so movingly about American identity. Both have extensive bios, so I'll only give some brief highlights here. Mark Connor is president of Skidmore College. He's the co-editor most recently of The Selected Letters of Ralph Ellison, which was a New York Times notable book in 2020. He taught for many years at Washington and Lee University, where he was a member of the English department and where he also served as provost. Lucas Morrell is the John K. Boardman Jr. Professor of Politics at Washington and Lee University. Lucas and Mark co-edited a book called The New Territory, Ralph Ellison and the 21st Century, was first published in 2016 and was out in paperback in 2020. Before that, Lucas edited a book called Ralph Ellison and the Raft of Hope, a political companion to Invisible Man, to which Mark contributed an essay. In addition to their collaboration on Ellison Scholarship, they also taught youth basketball together, and one of them, I won't say which, was known to receive technical fouls on a fairly frequent basis. Well, welcome, Mark Connor, to Enduring Interest. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Flag. Great to be here. Appreciate and, it. And Lucas Morrell, it's great to have you here to discuss Ellison. Thank you, Flag. Appreciate the invitation and good to hear from my good buddy, uh, Mark Connor. Yeah. Well, let's get right into it. Mark, I wanted to start with you. Most of our listeners will know Ellison as the author of Invisible Man, and, and many will also probably have read the posthumous novel Juneteenth. Uh, but some might not be as familiar with, with Ellison, the essayist, uh, how prolific he was and how early on he started writing essays. So I wondered if you could start by, by talking about Ellison as an essayist. Was this something he um, you know, thought to be an important part of his kind of literary legacy? When did he start writing them? Just flesh that out a bit, uh, Ellison as essayist. And then, um, Lucas, you can you know, add anything that, that you think you want, you want to after, after Mark starts us out. Thank you, Flag. It's, it's a great question about Ellison. I, I have said for years, had Ellison never written Invisible Man, we would still be studying him, uh, learning about him solely because of his, his luminous uh, collections of essays. And uh, it's, it's appropriate that he was named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, I have also long said that the, the two most significant American essayists are Emerson and Ellison. Uh, and I say that because in, in both cases, they had this uh, incredible scope with what they were doing in their essays, trying to 
encapsulate what I would describe as the entire American project. So from culture to religion, to politics, uh, to history, to humor, uh, the whole range is, is contained in their great essays. And, and Ellison, he was writing essays and short fiction for almost a decade before he actually wrote Invisible Man. And in the 1940s, he wrote a, a whole sequence of important essays that, that really were indispensable for the writing of his great novel, Invisible Man. So he wrote essays about some of the uh, um, mental asylums in Harlem. He wrote essays for uh, the Federal Writers Project about African-American folklore uh, as African-Americans came from the South to the North. Uh, he wrote essays about music, particularly, but not only jazz music and its importance to African-American and the larger American culture. So the, the essays in the 40s were in many ways kind of tests or early explorations for the kind of work that would go into Invisible Man. And one of the things we see, even in his very latest essays of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, is that the voice of Ellison, the essayist, and the voice of Ellison, the novelist, often overlap and intermingle. So from the 1980s, there are certain late essays, like An Extravagance of Laughter, where whole passages are, are either reworked in the unfinished second novel, or, or they get their first treatment in the second novel. And that's interesting about Ellison. So fiction and nonfiction, it's not really a neat cleavage for Ellison. In some ways, his voice kind of, kind of blends in and out from those, from those different perspectives. And, and once Invisible Man comes out, in the 1950s and 60s, he's publishing far more nonfiction than he is fiction. In fact, he'll never publish that second novel for 40 years uh, until his death, it remains unfinished from Invisible Man in 52 to his death in 94. But he brings out two major collections of essays, as well as a number of individually published essays during that time. So in many ways, it's Ellison, the essayist, the commentator, what we now call the cultural critic or the public intellectual, who is really driving the Ellison corpus and moving forward Ellison's thought, ideas, and imagination. So in, in many ways, Ellison as essayist is one of the most important avenues into understanding Ellison's thought. And so then he has two, two collections, right? One, one's called Shadow and Act, and the other is called Going to the Territory. Uh, Lucas, you want to add anything to, to what sure. Mark said about? I'll just say here, I know Mark is a spectacular president at Skidmore, but you just heard... <laughs> A fantastic introduction to why Ralph Ellison, Ralph Waldo Ellison, Ellison, uh, is uh, an essential interpreter of is what Mark called uh, the American Project. And I, I know you aren't, you're probably not teaching any more courses, Mark, but good night. Uh, this is what we are missing uh, with, with his leadership at Skidmore. At any rate, um, yeah, 1964, Shadow and Act was his first collection of essays. Uh, and interviews. Um, these interviews are, are, they give the, uh, the impression of being just a Q&A, but he actually reworked those and, and saw them as a way of uh, revealing, um, in, as he understood it, um, the development of, um, of America. So Shadow and Act was published when I was born, 1964, and that's essays that's, that began as early as 42, uh, up through, the 60, uh, through 64. Going to the Territory, 
uh, from which we, I believe, are going to be talking about an essay or two in particular. That was published in 1986, and that was his second collection. And those interviews ran from 63 uh, to 86. If you were to ask me, well, what what are the abiding themes, or what is Ellison up to in all these, you know, these essays when he should have been finishing that novel? Uh, <laughs> what, what what was he doing besides teaching, uh, which he was he was doing at various universities? Um, he was basically explaining in prose what he did in fiction in his first novel. His uh, what he was surprised that he won the National Book Award in '53 for Invisible Man. It was his first novel. He says, you know, I think it's great that I pulled this off, but boy, the American novel must be in pretty bad shape if I'm if I get the National Book Award uh, for my first effort. I think he's explaining in these essays um, uh, the mystery in part of of America, American identity. As he once said, the Invisible Man, if Invisible Man is the pursuit of identity, right, an unnamed protagonist, uh, at least as far as the reader knows, uh, this second novel, an excerpt that was published by his literary executor, John Callahan, as Juneteenth, but the full version was published just three days before the shooting, he said that second novel was about the evasion of identity. And so Ellison is constantly wrestling and trying to get America uh, Americans uh, all across the racial spectrum to deal with um, who they are, uh, uh, what, the, what the sources of who they are really are in a more capacious and comprehensive manner than their history books uh, tell them. And in what they're becoming, we are an unfinished project. That second uh, collection, right, is going to the territory. And, and, you know, we've had these essays by others written about the closing of the American frontier. Ellison said that that isn't that isn't true by a long shot, that, that especially in terms of art and literature, uh, uh, but he would also say in terms of civic identity, we're still trying to figure out, uh, as he says, we're, we're, we're still perfecting this thing we call America. Um, we're still on the frontier. We're still uh, lighting out for the territory, as it were, borrowing, uh, obviously, from Twain. And so he was exploring uh, these themes um, in fiction in Invisible Man, and uh, in these essays, I think, are explaining how he understands who we are as Americans, um, how race has, has complicated that, and unfortunately, and in many ways, unnecessarily, uh, but the role that race played in our de uh, development uh, as a people, who we are as white people, who we are as black people, in both cases, so-called. Uh, well, I think we're going to talk about what it means for Ellison for us to be, uh, to be American is to be both. <laughs> you white people out there, guess what? Part black. And uh, you black people out there, oh yeah, there's some white in you as well. So these essays, uh, you know, reveal what he, he thinks is still unfortunately a mystery uh, to most Americans uh, in terms of especially, especially their conscious life, how they understand uh, the development of this country. And of course, this is a theme that Nicole Hannah-Jones has, has made a mint out of for the last couple of years with her 1619 project. Ellison was way ahead of her, but even before Ellison, Carter G. Woodson, Du Bois, Douglas, basically any black person who has been here more than a year, even before the creation of the United States, knows that they haven't simply been on the receiving end of America, white America, that is. Uh, they have been contributing uh, uh, all along the way. So I'm sure this is stuff that we're going to tease out more as we continue. Right. Yeah. So I've, I've brought you here to, to discuss two essays in particular. The first is called The Little Man at Chiha Station. And the second, What America Would Be Like Without Blacks. We'll start with the, the Little Man essay, spend most of our time on that. It's a fascinating essay 
I think it's two principal themes are kind of a meditation on the problem of aesthetic communication and, and second, a meditation on the problem of American identity. But it also, this is what I think makes it so fascinating. It has these four symbols or images uh, in the essay. We'll start, I'll ask you, Lucas, to, to talk about this little man that we meet um, in the first couple paragraphs, but then we, we meet a strange character on Riverside Drive who has a, a weird looking outfit on. Um, we, we hear Ellison talk about this Prokofiev manuscript that he finds in Tuskegee, and then we, we meet these strange characters in the basement of this apartment building. So it's, yeah. it's both an, an essay that's filled with argument, but also an essay filled with these wonderful images. So Lucas, why don't you just introduce the Little Man essay by, by starting us off, talk about the, the image that he starts with. Right. Uh, Ellison, as uh, some people know, was at Tuskegee Institute, uh, the famous uh, school founded by Booker T. Washington uh, early in the, the late, sorry, late in the 19th century. He was there on a music scholarship. Uh, he never completed his studies. He made it through junior year and for a number of reasons um, didn't come back. He went north kind of to earn money, but uh, also, some of his formative mentors had left by, by, by his junior year, and he, he really didn't have anybody that he could look up to uh, to return and make it, you know, who, make that school what he, he was really wanting it to be in terms of his completing his studies. So he was there on a music scholarship. He wanted to become a classical composer. He was a trained trumpetist. And I think on a monthly basis, they were supposed to perform a sort of recital for their teachers. And... He did not bring his A game one time and tried to just show off some technical virtuosity and thought that would, uh, uh, that would do. And his teachers read him the riot act. One in particular, Hazel Harrison, who he was closest to, she was the one who left for Howard University after his junior year or during his junior year, uh, which crushed him. Um, she, he went to her for sympathy and said, look, you know, I, I didn't play that many bad notes. What, what's, what's the deal? You guys are kind of hard. And she said, look, and this is important. She said, in this country, essentially, you have to bring your A game. There will, you have to assume that even if you're playing at the waiting room at Chiha Station, which is this, it's not even in existence now, maybe the building's there, but it was this little podunk railway depot, uh, you know, a few miles from Tuskegee uh, in Alabama. It's this podunk train station. And she says, even if you're playing in the waiting room there, you have to assume there is a little man behind the, hidden behind the stove who knows the music, knows the standards, knows the classics, knows the traditions. And that person, that's your judge. <laughs> that's your judge and jury. And, uh, you know, the subtitle of the, of the essay is uh, uh, the American, what is it? The, the American artist and his audience, something to that effect. And so Ellison's claim is what he learned from Hazel Harrison's um, lesson, uh, where she didn't take pity on him, but said, if you want to be an artist, this is, this is the level that you got to be aiming for. What he learned was that in this particular kind of country, where it seems like we're, we're rigid and stratified in terms of class and race and other, you know, nation of origin, the fact of the matter is culture is in great flux. Much of it is fixed. I mean, to say that there is an American culture, yeah, there's things we can finger. Uh, you know, jazz and the blues are part of that. Folklore is part of that. In our politics, right? Equality, consent, 
uh, right. That's part of our culture that uh, even religion, right? Judaism and Christianity go a long way to shaping who we are, even if we're not, you know, con, you know, uh, you know, dyed in the wool Christians or Jews. Uh, it's part of what makes America. But part of America is still in flux, still becoming, still transitory. And Ellison said, you can't assume that if you look like me, a black man, or uh, his mother, who you know was a maid and housekeeper, you can't assume that that we don't know what's going on in this country and that we don't we haven't learned. Like she was bringing him copies of Esquire magazine that were being thrown out by her employer, and he was reading Freud in high school because that was this this little library just had a bunch of books that anybody wanted to look at them could could read them, and no one told him he shouldn't read this because he wasn't old enough. It's like, you just never know what people know. You can't look at them and, and determine this. And because that part is hidden from us, again, alas, tragically hidden from us because of what we assume uh, about racial minorities or about women or about foreigners, you name it, right? This is invis invisibility is operating on so many levels in so many ways. He said that, um, that, Part of the challenge of being an artist, not a good musician or a good writer in his case, part of the challenge of, of aspiring to be great is, is, is this knowledge that, boy, this country, in spite of racial slavery and racial segregation, is, is um, yeah, kind of the membranes between these classes is permeable, if that makes sense. And the cultural flows in both directions and especially if you're in that lower stratus, that you know that that lower decile, as economists like to talk about, um, you can't assume that 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 everybody down there doesn't know what's going on in the, the the one percent, as we like to say today. And so that little man represents that American figure. She made him up, but in a way, she's the little man because she was an accomplished pianist. I believe at one one place I read she was the first black musical performer in Europe. She played with the Berlin Philharmonic or some such orchestra. Uh, she was taken on as a student by a very famous uh, conductor at a time where he wasn't taking on students and she was a black woman. I mean, she was, as we said, a double minority, but she, you know, if you would look at her, wow, she's teaching piano at Tuskegee, this Votech institution, but she, she was a mystery precisely because of what people assumed about her. Ellison, is the invisible man, given what he is saying in this particular essay and what he will go on to do. Black people, I say invisible man, Ellison is the little man at Chiha Station, given how much he knows about this country, about the world, in spite of the fact that he went to segregated schools through high school. Uh, black people are the little man, if you will, because of so much that has gone, gone on that we assume couldn't possibly go on because of course, White privilege, right? Uh, he, Ellison, if he was alive, would say that, you know, white privilege, these things uh, are overplayed. Um, he always referred to it as the myth of white supremacy, but I'll stop here. Mark yeah, that's will... great. That's great, Lucas. So I think uh, Mark's trying to chime in here. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to transition to, to to Mark, but one thing I just wanted to to emphasize is that um, at, the, at the time when Harrison tells <laughs> Ellison the, the anecdote, he has no idea what to make of it. Oh yeah, right. So, so that it's only after years and years of thinking about American identity and the problem of rhetoric and all this stuff that he thinks, oh, now I'm starting to understand what she, 
what she meant. Uh, yeah. So, so Mark, I'll I'll go to you. Can you say say a little bit more about the what what Lucas started this off with, and that is the kind of the problem of rhetoric, the problem of of communication in the United States. Ellison seems to think artists in the United States, specifically, as you said, Lucas, writers in his case. Um, have a particular set of challenges they need to confront that maybe European artists don't. So yeah, just talk a little bit about that. Well, absolutely. It, it's such a great essay for us to focus on. There, there's so much happening there. You know, Lucas used, I think, one of the most powerful words, the, the little man is the judge. Uh, the essay is all about judgment, uh, uh, our confusion over who is making the judgments, who has the power to make judgments, and, and by what standards they make those judgments. So judgment is always happening, but it's always never in the ways that we think. And of course, the underbelly of judgment is stereotype. We judge based on the assumptions we are making. Oh, that person is from this region. Oh, that person is from this race. Oh, that person is from this gender. They must think X, they must write Y, they must do Z. When in fact, Ellison is saying, we elude all of that. We elude all of those judgments constantly. So um, uh, this, this question of rhetoric and communication is so important to Ellison. One of the things he does in the essays is lay out for us an alternative genealogy of American literature. Ellison, in effect, rewrites the curriculum of American literature. And, he, and he, it, one of the main arguments he wants to make is the greatest of American writers are those who have the moral courage to with the American challenge of race. And so he looks at not, not just Twain, who's an obvious one, but also Melville, Stephen Crane, who wasn't being thought of in that way, but, but Ellison brings out the ways in which Crane grapples with race. Ellison is, as far as I know, the first to realize that Fitzgerald's great triumph, The Great Gatsby, is filled, filled with an investigation of American race. American ethnicity, all the different things that go into what he'll refer to in some of the essays as the melting pot. So he is, he is obsessed with communication and with rhetoric, what, what he will refer to as the vernacular and, and American speech. And it's one of the big arguments that he will make, uh, uh, particularly in Little Man at Chiaw Station, um, but also in what, what would America be like without Blacks, that language, American language, is where we most see the mixing of American idioms, the mixing of American characters, and, and the mixing of American races, that you, you cannot parse an American sentence without seeing therein the presence not just of white, but of black. Uh, and now in the 21st century, Ellison would be extremely comfortable with the whole maelstrom of, of idiosyncratic vernaculars that we have. He, he would look at hip hop culture, for example, and say that there it is, uh, uh, all this mixing of different American voices. So I like the way you're pointing us towards the rhetoric and the communication and, and the reading that is happening in these essays, because it's, it's, it's right at the heart of what Ellison is most interested in. Yeah, Lucas, can you add to that? How, how do you think this the awareness of the the metaphorical little man then should affect someone who's trying to write for an American audience. Our, our great friend uh, John F. Callahan, with whom uh, Mark Connor has uh, edited a spectacular volume of letters um, that came out a few years ago. Uh, Callahan was uh, one of Ellison's, if, uh, 
best friends, if not Ellison's best friend. He was not a man given to best friends. I hope we talked about Albert Murray down, down the way. Um, someone he knew vaguely at Tuskegee, who was, I think, two years uh, behind him. But uh, Callahan once described Ellison's writing as crossing the narrative color line. In fact, I invited him out of the blue. I didn't know Callahan from Adam. And he, more importantly, he didn't know me from Adam um, on the anniversary of Ellison's Invisible Man, 50th anniversary of the publication. Now, I was only like two or three years at, at, at Washington and Lee where Mark was in the English department. I'm in politics. And I just emailed John Callahan and I said, hey, 50th anniversary. I don't know that anybody's doing anything uh, for uh, to mark this occasion for Invisible Man. Why don't you come and talk to our campus? And he said, sure. And he, he used that either that phrase or that uh, as a title for one of his talks, crossing the narrative color line. It was a tremendous challenge for Ellison, not simply because nobody knew who he was, uh, but because here was a man who wanted to talk, as Mark indicated, in a more capacious, more comprehensive manner about America in a way that, you know, as much as he might admired Hemingway, for example, for his craft as a writer, Hemingway didn't have the courage to talk about Black people uh, and their, their presence in the United States. And I'm not a Hemingway scholar, so I'm, I'm willing to get hammered on this. But Ellison was disappointed about Hemingway. Here's a guy who is famous for grace under pressure. Gee, I wonder if that's something that got worked out in American history. Yeah, Black people. If anybody knew what grace under pressure meant, that saved millions of people from dying in this country in terms of Black self-control and discipline and humor that kept things uh, under wraps in, in a way that uh, was, was just truly morally demanding. Uh, at any rate, um, Ellison wanted to write and write in idiom. In, uh, I mean, he's got uh, uh, one of his key characters, Ross the Exhorter, Ross the Destroyer, speaks with a West Indian, you know, Jamaican accent. And, and he has him saying mon, and he's got to spell it like that. And he's thinking, man, I'm going to be telling jokes and riffing on things that black people in a certain area of the country will understand. How does this come across to white people? But the way I explain it is Ellison said, I'm going to throw it out there. I'm going to do my best job with it. And what might have given him the courage was a book that I don't know that anybody told him to read, but a book on T.S. Eliot. Ellison uh, worked in the library a little bit, and he may have gotten this tip from his English professor, but he got, came across T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. And again, I'm not an expert on this. I just play it on podcasts. Um, Eliot, I mean, good grief. It's a poem that has not only has footnotes, they're in Greek. Now, what, who, who told Eliot to what? I mean, A, footnotes. It's a poem for crying out loud. In Greek, you mean I, I got to go look this stuff up? And which means 99% of the people aren't doing that. Guess what Ellison did? He was so intrigued by what Eliot, what Eliot was doing in English. He said it reminded him of Louis Armstrong, of all people, the breaks and the cuts and the improvisation. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Ellison thought, well, good grief, if, if Eliot, who's a known commodity in, in literary circles, can uh, risk doing these things in different languages, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw my novel up and see if it sticks. I'm going to say things and describe them in ways um, that um, uh, are expressed in different uh, Black American idiom and vernacular, as well as white. And then, of course, uh, alluding to world literature all over the place. I mean, there's uh, not, not just 
literature, but Freud's in there uh, a lot in the fir very first chapter. Good grief. Um, but, you know, Joyce, uh, uh, whom uh, uh, Mark Connor knows way more about than, than most people on the planet. And so Ellison uh, took those sorts of risks because he wanted to be that kind of artist. He wanted to be that kind of writer. This is a guy who says that he read, and he was the best man at Richard Wright's first wedding. I read Native Son as it came off the typewriter. And yet he, he discovered two things about reading Wright. And that was published in 1940. He said, one, I knew I could learn a lot about how to write. But more importantly, I learned that Richard Wright's vision, especially of America, was not my vision. And therefore, there was a part of this animal, this elephant that is America, that I think I could speak to and it be true and it be relevant. And, and moving from those particulars, I think I could speak to something universally uh, or uh, universal, if you will. So anybody reading this novel, um, yeah, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be things they don't understand. And I hope I... I am eloquent enough that I will entice them to do that heavy lifting to figure out these things so that they can gain a greater appreciation for what I'm pointing to in this country that I don't think anybody before me has pointed to. Right. So there's a kind of um, dialectical relationship then between what Ellison thinks one needs to do to kind of master a tradition and be aware of people like Eliot, uh, Twain, Hemingway, on down the list, but then also an awareness of and, a, and an attempt to resuscitate, I guess, different vernaculars, you know, and so there's a kind of dynamic between these universal themes that you find in, you know, wonderful, wonderful novels that have these things in common, but also a kind of particularity, specificity, right, that you would get by being rooted in a particular vernacular. You want to add anything to that, Mark? Oh, my gosh, do I, do I ever? Yeah, it it, it, it's it's you know, we, we go back to Ellison coming to Tuskegee to major in music as as Lucas talked about and his ambition was to be the first to be able to compose both classical symphonies and jazz symphonies who want to bring the two traditions together and and that although he abandons music ultimately for literature in a way that same ambition drives Ellison all the way throughout his his whole enterprise but it's a mistake to think of him as saying, I'm, I'm doing my classical over here and my jazz over there. Rather, he wants to have these two entering into the full stream. These are streams entering into the full river, to use one of his favorite metaphors from Huck Finn of American literature and American culture. And, and this is again where he's really pushing back against stereotype. And he really wants to think about the ways in which uh, uh, the American idiom is neither high nor low, but it's all. So he loved Walt Whitman's phrase, I sound my barbaric yop. And <laughs> that element of it, you know, in Twain's rich vernacular of the territory. But remember also later in his life, one of his favorite authors was Henry James. That is the most you know, sort of high eloquent kind of Euro, European American uh, uh, stylized rhetoric. And Ellison looked at that and said, that too is the black American language. His fascination with James over the last 15, 20 years of his life is, is really fascinating. At a time when Ellison is writing about Alonzo Hickman, a, a black jazz man turned preacher uh, and, and really more immersed in the so-called black vernacular than ever. So for Ellison, it's never either or, whether we're talking about literature or music, or especially if we're talking about race, it's always a very complex blending 
where ultimately you can't tease apart the differences. You have to find a way to accept the way they're all kind of melding together uh, and, and working together to constitute this thing called America. That's great. So we've talked about this little man as a, a metaphor for aesthetic communication. Now I want to move to the second major theme of the essay, and that is his meditation on American identity. And I'll, I'll just point uh, our listeners to a particular passage. It's on page 504. This is the collected essays, um, which, which is a collection that puts together shadow and act and going to the territory. So on page 404, he writes, so perhaps we shy from confronting our cultural wholeness because it offers no easily recognizable points of rest, no facile certainties as to who, what, or where culturally or historically we are. Instead, the whole is always in cacophonic motion. <laughs> and then skipping down to the end of that paragraph, he says, deep down, the American condition is a state of unease. Lucas, talk about that. What, what does he mean by state of unease? Uh, I mentioned earlier that, uh, at least as I read Ellison, he sees that there are these distinctive, there are these things that we say constitute American culture and that the contributors, of course, are not just white, black and everything in between. Uh, but there are also things that are in flux, not just in flux in terms of how culture is transmitted uh, across generations and across, very importantly, class. Um, even the lower class can figure out the difference between, well, really nice things and not so nice things. Uh, but it's, it's those, that part of American culture that is um, different, strange even, um, that Ellison said it, it should not surprise us that there is a cost involved in terms of the formation of this yet fully formed thing we call America. And that cost is unease, uh, or at least the condition is unease. And the way you relieve that unease, uh, Ellison called it psychic security, that psychologically, especially the white majority, uh, it, it shouldn't surprise us. He's not letting them off the hook or, or, or it, it, that's for him, it's, that's not the most important thing. He's just like, it shouldn't surprise us that the white majority as this culture was still in formation, as classes were no longer strictly stratified as in the old world, that in this world, new world, it shouldn't surprise us that the white majority, which is the controlling majority in a democracy, in a republic, would cling to that part of the rock, as he put it, that was most familiar to them. And not just cling to that rock, cling to that part, those parts of America that they're like, oh yeah, I, I understand this because I'm related to that either by blood or, or through my race, just simply by being a white person. It's not just clinging to that part of the rock. It's also claiming that that part of the rock was the whole thing. Hmm. So yeah, that's not important. accepting that blacks contributed to that thing that they see as white, but also that there were other parts that are part of uh, America. And so um, he says, you know, it's no surprise that, that they overcame or attempted to overcome their psychological insecurity uh, the unease that you you pointed out by trying to find uh, what he calls psychic security on the previous page. I, I'm pretty. I looked this over before I, we got into this, and he says that you know that this this um, this psychic security that they're looking for is born uh, not simply of fear and uncertainty in terms of the, what they consider to be strange, right? People that aren't like them, whether it's the indigenous Native American population or Blacks who have been there uh, as long as whites have. But also, Elson uses this word, 
It's driven also by yearning that there is something that even whites in their apprehension towards blacks that they're enticed by. They've noticed certain things and Ellison audaciously said, and they noticed it before slavery was abandoned. Before, before the Civil War, whites were already borrowing and stealing from the things they saw the lowest of the low, right? The subtitle to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Cabin, Life Among the Lowly, that they noticed that Blacks were picking up on things in America and putting their own spin on it. Not because they were Black, but because they were human. That's what human beings do. And in, again, in spite of segregation, in spite of racial slavery, Black people were acting like human beings. They weren't simply trying to survive. They weren't simply trying to uh, make a way out of no way, as the old saying goes. Um, they were trying to, in their limited sphere, thrive. And in the process, a culture was created amongst themselves, but also a culture that seeped into the greater, wider, with a D, American culture. Um, and uh, as it were, just to get back to your question, um, uh, the, 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 the color line as it was um, enticed and made it easy for the political majority, which was a racial majority, to, um, to hold on to certain things as the most familiar and therefore the only things that were truly American. Here's the problem though, and this is where Ellison's great genius uh, was that he turned away from music and sculpture for a little while when he went to New York, he turned to literature and he said, oh my goodness, in this country, they put it in writing, <laughs> right? So they put it down on paper. And he said, the most important things to these white people are these documents they call the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's in writing. Now, if we were talking about the Confederate Constitution, we would be having an entirely different conversation. <laughs> but the Declaration didn't say anything about race, except for that one passage about the savage Indians. It didn't mention black or white. It said all men. And black said, hmm, uh, where do I sign? Sounds good to me. Government by consent? Mm, check, right? Inalienable rights? Did I get them from the, my creator, not from political majorities? Check. And so he said, in spite of themselves, whites were, if you will, uh, if not daily, on a regular basis, interrogated by their own professions. And, and that gap between what they profess to be true and what is actually implemented or practiced, um, it's that gap that Americans have continually wrestled with and, and why I call American history one long civil rights act, uh, one, one long civil rights struggle um, uh, uh, we can't live with ourselves with that gap for long. We've got to do something, either change our principles, which at least some whites tried to do by forming a separate country, or we've got to change our practice. And this is all, I hope it makes sense, try to come full circle here. Uh, this is all bound up in this um, unease we have with difference, with uh, strangeness, um, uh, and a desire for psychic security to relieve that unease. Um, but the, the good news is um, at least we profess certain things and have held on to those as King, you know, uh, Martin Luther King put it, all we ask is that you be true to what you said on paper. Ellison got that. Ellison said, yeah, that is the driver of American progress. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, before we, I want to talk a bit more maybe about the, the linguistic demands that Ellison found in, in American political tradition, but but I want to stick with the theme of, of culture for a minute. Uh, Mark, Ellison talks 
a lot in this essay about cultural <laughs> integration. He talks about our unity and in, in diversity. So could, could you say a little bit more about how Ellison thinks we ought to look for that unity? Um, he, he seems to have some nice things to say about uh, the now a metaphor that is sort of scorn is heaped upon at the melting pot. And he, he even comes to a defense of, of uh, cultural appropriation, which is also now something that people aren't too excited about. So um, talk about Ellison in, in those respects. Yeah, there, there are Ellisonian ideals that, that match really well with our current moment and Ellisonian concepts that really seem to be in tension with our current moment. And you, you mentioned a couple of them right there. You know, I think to go back to this question of the unease in American society, you know, we, we need to recall, as Ellison knew, that there's two great strands in American philosophy. One is transcendentalism and one is pragmatism. And, and the greatest American philosophers and writers like Ellison bring them both together. And this ultimately is what, what Lucas is, is outlining in how Ellison reads American history, that we have these transcendental ideals expressed in these founding documents, and then the long history of relative failure to live up to those ideals, the response to which is both to insist on the transcendent ideal and to look at the pragmatic realities. How are we doing? What can we do better? We, we can't get from here to there, but we can take the, the incremental steps, uh, the incremental steps along the way. So, so we then think about the, the ways in which Ellison is, is going to put this into practice uh, and why he turns to literature, why he turns to the written word for these things. As Lucas points out, America is, is nearly unique in having these sacred texts. And texts, of course, require interpretation. Uh, and, and Ellison saw his role as novelist and essayist, I would say, uh, uh, as being in that interpretive vein. And, and in interpretation, you're always going to be rubbing up against the transcendent and the pragmatic, and that's where the unease or the anxiety is to be found. Flag, I don't know if I answered the question you asked, but... No, that's excellent. That's excellent. Um, maybe we could stop at this point and bring in the other essay, What America Would Be Like Without, Without Blacks, that gets at this uh, theme of cultural interpenetration, cultural appropriation. Um, so Lucas, talk, talk about what he says there. Ellison, just to point out the term he uses, he often uses this, this term Negro American yeah. tradition, right? In, in, instead of African American or even Afro American. So maybe say something about Ellison's preferred, you know, language to describe this this specific tradition. Yeah, um, his preference was for Negro, even though, of course, that's politically incorrect to say today, uh, because he thought it captured something that was only a product of the Black American experience. To speak of Black, of course, could apply to any number of uh, people across the globe, but to speak of the Negro or the, uh, what we would say is the African-American today, Ellison said he thought that that, that that Negro, actually that word captured what I referred to earlier as this devel development of culture by a people who were trying to make a way out of no way and, and not just for themselves. It wasn't FUBU for us, by us. Uh, and even if it, you attempted to do that, White said, uh, we'll, we'll be the judge of that. In other words, I'll like that, I'll take that cultural appropriation, right? There is no America without cultural appropriation. Um, uh, many cultures. 
So he, he tried to hold on to Negro because of what he thought it captured. He, he, that was one of his projects in writing Invisible Man, that that culture and how it, it came to be in, in the many ways it expressed itself, uh, that, if you will, those generations were dying off and he wanted it in the canon. He wanted it in the literature so that down the, you know, when he's long gone, people would go, oh, wow, this guy got it or got a lot of what it meant to be America, how, how America came to be. Uh, and so this essay, which was published in Time Magazine, an entire issue devoted to Blacks in America, he was invited among a number of people to write uh, an essay. Uh, Jacob Lawrence, the great um, uh, Black American artist, produced an image uh, for the cover. Uh, it was an image of Jesse Jackson, right? Uh, arguably the most famous Black American political activist at the, at the, the turn of that decade, early 70s. Uh, so Ellison writes this essay. Um, yeah, what America would be like without Blacks. His title was The Fantasy of a Blackless America. And the editor said, no, 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 we're not going to go with that. So what does Elson do? He uses that sentence twice in the first paragraph, right? <laughs> it's the very first sentence. And then he, he throws it in and he says, this is fantastic. This is a fantasy to think that, are we still talking about this? It's 1970 and we're still trying to figure out whether Blacks have a place in America. Guess who already decided they have a place in America? white people, <laughs> uh, they could not be who they are and this country would not be who it is politically, economically, and especially culturally, literature, uh, music, uh, art, you name it. Um, this country wouldn't be what it is uh, in many ways for good and in unfortunate ways for ill, but for the presence of this distinct racial um, group of people in this country before the United States existed, they were here. So um, trying to get back to your original question about Negro and what it captured for Ellison, um, it captured a, a way of life uh, that enabled a distinct, uh, you know, a distinct uh, minority of, of Americans that uh, managed uh, both intentionally and unintentionally uh, to, to be one of those, as, as Mark pointed out earlier, one of those tributaries that fed into what we consider to be uh, the American mainstream. That's great. Um, Mark, I wanted to bring us to the end of the Little Man essay and ask you about that concluding anecdote. But maybe before I do that, do you want to add anything to, to, what, to what Lucas just said on, this, on the question of, uh, of the specific Negro American tradition? It, it's so important to understand with Ellison. You know, he, he really is celebrating and trying to catalog and preserve this, this distinct period in African-American history, about 1930 to 1950 or so, uh, when uh, obviously it's, it's still the era of segregation, but Ellison, like a number of other Black thinkers, saw some of the good in, in segregation, just in this sense, that it preserved almost as an chrysalis Black American culture uh, at, at some of its strongest elements. And so when, when he talks about jazz, for him, the, the good things of jazz really end with Duke Ellington. It really stops as we get into Charlie Parker and bebop and this just this fusion and going so forth into the 60s. I mean, he appreciated that and understood it. He said there was a there was a purity to to this era of Black American culture. And the uh, um, dedication of Juneteenth is to that vanishing tribe into which I was born, the American Negro. And he's talking about this, this kind of high point of African-American culture. Now, discerning readers know, yeah, there's a bit of a contradiction here 
Ellison is talking about the melting pot and about assimilation and his phrase, take the best and leave the rest. A pure culture is, is in some ways anathema to Ellison's thinking. So he both wants to, to kind of uphold this, this distinct 20, 30 year period of black culture as a kind of pure pinnacle, but he also wants to argue for the inevitable mixing of all American cultures. And I actually think that's something Ellison himself never quite, never quite came to a final stand on. And it's what informs the second novel and made it so hard for him to finish. In, in the other character there, Bliss, the, the young boy of indeterminate race, he looks white, he's raised by the black community that he ends up betraying, but perhaps in some ways is true to it at the end. In a way that is as much a version of Ellison as is Hickman, the jazz man turned preacher, uh, because Ellison sees himself in this character, I don't know which race I am, I don't, I don't know any notion of purity, I'm gonna grab onto a kind of purity, but I see the violence that does to people that I love. And in many ways, Ellison, maybe even subconsciously, is trying to work through and even exercise his own push-pull towards a transcendent purity and a pragmatic mixture of American culture. That's great. I love the, the connection to, uh, to the, the material in Juneteenth. That's really interesting, the connection between the theme of his essays and that, and that unfinished novel. Um, Mark, why don't, why don't you bring us to the end of the, the Chiha Station essay? So we start with this anecdote of, of uh, young, young Ralph getting a talking to from uh, his, his stern teacher, Hazel Harrison. Uh, then he tells a story that, that must have happened about three years later when he's working for the, uh, the Federal Writers Project, gathering signatures, and he ends up in the, in the basement of, a, of an apartment building in New York City. So talk about what, what happens there. He, he gets down there, and he's uh, uh, doing WPA research, and he meets these uh, African-American workers, and to his shock, uh, they're debating the fineries of, of opera. <laughs> and even the shock, in a way, is anti-Ellisonian, because Ellison himself wouldn't be surprised by that. That's the whole point. But he's kind of he's kind of being the young, uh, uh, the young hick in a way, uh, embodied in in the narrator. And and he asks them, how how, how do you, you know, African American man of the of the working class, how do you know these fineries of high culture and opera? And again, it's kind of a of a stage moment for him. And and they laugh and they say and come and get us to be the extras in Aida, in Salome, in all these great parts. And, and, and it's, it's a mockery as well as an exposure of prejudice and stereotype. You know, they, they give us a spear and dress us up in a costume and, and we look like just what they want. So there's multiple signifiers that are going on here. But the point of course is this defeating of all expectations. Where do you go for an elaborate discussion of the intricacies of European opera? Well, you go to the basement of, of a warehouse and you talk to the black laborers who are there. And Ellison would say that there's no surprise to this. This is how, this is how America works. Yeah, Lucas, you want to add anything just to the, the anecdote that he ends with? No, I mean, I'll, I'll, let me just read the last couple of sentences because that, that really does bring um, the essay not just formally to a close, but it really does tie up uh, his main uh, argument uh, about who, who this little man is and could be, and he met them. Um, this was part of his learning. Oh, this was what she was saying. Uh, where there's a melting pot, there's smoke. 
And where there's smoke, it is not simply optimistic to expect fire, it's imperative to watch for the phoenix vernacular, but transcendent rising. Uh, and of course, what Mark uh, intimated, but didn't say that these guys were talking about these, um, you know, deciding who was better, you know, Maria Callas or somebody else, uh, but they're doing it in profane language, in profane American, you know, gutter speech. But, but what's hidden underneath that is true discernment because they had been, right, as he says, if they need an Egyptian, they call on us, right? As Mark said, give us a spear, give us a shield and just shut up and stay back there. But nobody taught them not to listen. That whole time, I mean, operas are not short, right? How many of you guys just turn on the radio or pluck down an album? Oh, you guys don't know what an album is. But anyway, our readers, our listeners might know. Uh, nobody does that because they know they're in for three or four hours in another language most of the time. But what are these? What are you guys? They're really just going to sit there? No, they start paying attention after a while. And then they start going, wait, wait when is this other person going to come? And we really like her. And that guy thinks he's all that. But notice when he tripped over this line or whatever. And so they're doing like what any other human being does is, is they're passing the time. They didn't have a cell phone to look at. And so they start listening to and over time. Uh, appreciating the music, and then are, I mean, they're getting their own, in their own way, uh, education on it, uh, and, and, and coming to some um, conclusions that they, that they have evidence for, that they could support. So um, I guess I'll say, I, I want to say, I don't know, are we going to talk about the, the, the other essay more? Because- Go ahead, yeah. Mark, Mark had mentioned uh, Ellison having this um, not quite fixed position on are, are we are we searching for something pure when we talk about standards and traditions and holding on to and preserving things because you don't preserve everything. What did Mark say? You know, keep the best and leave the rest. I love that. I haven't heard that before. I'm going to steal it now. No attribution. No. Uh, or, or are we this thing that's a more of a polyglot? And and in that 1970 essay, Ellison uses a word that we use a lot today. I mean, people are making dis. <laughs> not just making a minute, there, there are dissertations that are being written and could be written on things that Ellison just tosses off. He says that we shouldn't speak of assimilation, but of inclusion, inclusion. And it's not to say, and he did not reject the fact that there were things that say a foreigner coming to this country would assimilate to. Yeah, there are things that aren't changing. Right. We believe in equality. We're working out what that means in practice, but we believe in equality. We believe in rights. We believe in consent. OK, those things aren't changing. But he said, if it's true that America is still in the process, um, then that means anyone. It's, it's fair game for anyone to say, I've got an opinion or what about this? Uh, have you thought about or tried this? In other words, that this is a country, if any country is about inclusion, it's this country, given our sacred documents. And inclusion means we don't have all the answers. We've got a bunch and we insist on these and you, know, you gotta memorize a few of them before you become naturalized citizens like my parents who came from the Dominican Republic. But it also means that we haven't got it all figured out yet. And those answers are still forthcoming and it may not come from people who are already here, who, who, have, who came over uh, uh, on the Mayflower and are descendants of those folks. And so that mindset that, hey, maybe I've got uh, uh, something to contribute. Not to say that everything out there, and believe me, Ellison, I mean, 
He's one of the few black authors who's referring to the Declaration as a sacred document in the in the 50s and 60s, right? The the, the whole the, the the black power movement they they had no patience for Ralph Ellison, okay? Uh, so Ellison is one of those few at that time. You know, this is after the Civil Rights Act. This is after the Voting Rights Act. This is when blacks really are coming into their own as first class citizens and and pressing for that. There, Ellison says, I predict that they're gonna there's gonna be a time where everyone's going to look like they're like chickens with their heads cut off. We don't, we're not, we don't know who we are and where we're going. And, and it's, it, he says at that moment, inclusion has got to be the word, not simply assimilation. We, we have to see ourselves as a nation that has certain things in place, but is also still in the process of perfecting our democracy, right? We're forming a more perfect union as the preamble to the constitution says. So um, what exactly inclusion means, we're still working out uh, as a country. We've got departments devoted to it, right? On uh, Across, I don't know that there's a college that doesn't have a department on, on inclusion, diversity, and equity, uh, but these are still, uh, 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 we're still negotiating what exactly that, that requires of us. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on something in particular you, you mentioned, Lucas, by pointing us to a passage from the what America would be with like be like without blacks essay, and this just picks up on what I think is a wonderful connection between what Ellison saw as kind of the paradigmatic American attitude towards life and the future. It was future oriented. It was improvisational. It was forward looking. And so here's what he says about the presence of of Negro American culture. He says. Without the presence of Negro American style, our jokes, tall tales, even our sports would be lacking in the sudden turns, shocks, and swift changes of pace that serve to remind us that the world is never, the, I'm sorry, the world is ever unexplored, and that while a complete mastery of life is mere illusion, the real secret of the game is to make life swing. It is its ability to articulate this tragic comic attitude towards life that explains much of the mysterious power and attractiveness of that quality of Negro American style known as soul. I just love that, love that passage. Mark, you wanna add anything? I do, you know, again, we go back to these musical metaphors for Ellison, the tragic comic for him was really embodied in the blues where, where you understand and even embrace loss, sadness, devastation, tragedy, and yet you sing, you turn it into art, you find a way to celebrate and fit the, the small piece of tragedy into the larger cosmic structure of comedy. Comedy is always the larger structure. Ellison knew this as surely as Shakespeare did. And the other musical metaphor for Ellison he kept returning to is the jazz combo. And, and this really picks up on the political ideas that Lucas was talking about. Ellison knew that in jazz, new themes are introduced, there's always improvisation, and the performance is in the moment, and then that moment is gone, and you move on to the next performance. And that became his metaphor for American politics and for American literature, really for all of American culture. It's always in flux, always in performance, always reaching toward but never attaining that more perfect union. You never get the perfect union, you always get the, the gradual steps towards it and, and the falling away. He knew that in the early 50s, America was in a falling away period. He knew that in the 60s, as ambivalent as he was towards elements of the civil rights and black nationalist movement, we were in a falling toward 
moment. Uh, if he were living in our own time, and Ellison has much to say about the 21st century, there's a great book, by the way, Ralph Ellison in the 21st century, Lucas and I co-edited it, so I know it's, it's a good book. Uh, but we talk about the ways Ellison would have predicted both the, the moving toward a more perfect union of the Obama years and, and the extraordinary polarization and complexity of the Trump era. We had, you know, Ellison would not have been at all surprised by the last five to 15 years of American culture. In fact, he would have said, well, what surprises you here? This is exactly what I, I wrote about this, uh, both in Invisible Man and in Three Days Before the Shooting. So it's that, that always in flux jazz element. And, and yet I go back to his adoration of the great Gatsby. That's kind of like a perfect European symphony where you, you get the pure form for a moment. And, and then it goes on yet again. There's, there's Huck Finn and there's Henry James. He's drawn to both. Maybe we could, um, we could end. We're, we're about at the end of our time, but I thought we would end um, with some recommendations from, from the both of you on other favorite Ellison essays. Um, the two essays that we've been discussing are both from the second uh, collection, Going to the Territory. So if readers are interested, where might you send them if they're hungry for some, from some other Ellison essays? Uh, Mark, why don't you start? Sure, sure. So uh, when John Callahan collected Ellison's essays, he brought together the two major books, but he also brought together a number of things that not many people had seen. I'm gonna mention two. One is Tell It Like It Is Baby, which Ellison started in the 1950s. And it's a remarkable study of all the ideas we've been talking about including, it's, it's one of Ellison's most personal essays. He talks about a dream about his father, which he conflates with a dream about Abraham Lincoln. And, and you get an image of Lincoln as this extraordinarily complex figure. Uh, and, and this essay points to a crucial moment in the unfinished second novel, when Hickman brings his congregation to DC and they go to the Lincoln Memorial and they pray and they, and they hope and they celebrate and Hickman looks at, at Lincoln and, and he says, you were imperfect, you were flawed, we know all the things that, that you got wrong, and yet you, you were the one who, who pointed us to where we could go. And so, yes, I say yes to you, Father, you are okay by me. And, and that great essay, Tell It Like It Is, Baby, evokes a lot of that. The other one I'll point to, people don't talk about it much, it's only three pages, it's called February. And, and it's really just a very brief memoir of that period after Ellison's mother died. And, and he and his brother were on their own and, and they survived by what they were able to shoot as they went out into the fields. Uh, and Ellison learned to shoot by reading Hemingway's descriptions of how to shoot game on the wing. And it's this very brief, but highly lyrical evocative uh, portrayal of how much he misses his mother and how he's trying to find ways to survive with that loss. And that again, in miniature, is, is the tragic comic impulse in Ellison. That, so that second one is just oh, called February? It's called February, yeah, that, that winter month when, when they were on their own. Great, and that's in collected, the collected essays, yeah. It's, it's early on at the start. I think it's the first piece, in fact, or maybe the, the it is the first piece. Uh, Great, yeah, collected, collected essays has a few pieces that are not in, the, in either of the collected works. So it's not in Shadow and Act and it's not in Going to the Territory. So it's the collected essays are worth getting because you get both of those collections 
as well as a few other uh, essays and, uh, yeah, I think just essays that are not in the formal uh, collections. Um, I, my references or my recommendations come from my discipline. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in Ellison uh, because he's a great writer, but I'm, I'm especially interested in Ellison and what he teaches about politics and what he teaches about a free society. And so mine are, 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 are shaded towards those um, themes. So uh, an early one, and this one's in the early collection, uh, that same pain, that same pleasure, which is an interview that he gave in 1961. So, um, you know, I guess long enough after Invisible Man has been published and is now, he's now renowned as the author of it and, and working mightily on the second novel, um, that's one that talks about what it is that Blacks need to hold on to and what they need to learn about their past. I think one of the things um, and it's a little early at 61, but one of the things Ellison um, did not like about the movement towards an African past for African-Americans is he says that, well, wait a second, we haven't, what about the past here? And our, our past is not simply racial segregation and slavery. And, and again, this is the stuff Du Bois, he learned from Du Bois. This is what he learned, Carter G. Woodson, who the creator of Negro History Week, now our African-American History Month. This is what he learned from Fred Douglas um, is, all that Blacks had contributed to what is great in this country. D don't write that off. That isn't merely white. We had a hand and a significant hand in that. We let's, let's, st let's study that. Let's learn that. And by the way, Ellison was a collector of African art. It, it, most of the pictures that you see of him, photographs of him in his house in the background are, are masks and other artifacts from the continent of Africa. So he didn't have this animus towards the continent of Africa, but he just said, uh, we don't know from Africa. We barely are getting to know our own past um, as whites and, and blacks in this country. And so that particular essay, uh, pers uh, what did I say, perspective? No, 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 that same pain, that same pleasure. He's explaining that uh, in this interview. What do they need to hold on as blacks who have lived in America? In other words, what he considers a Negro, uh, as it were. Uh, perspective of literature uh, does both. It talks about how literature, uh, the role that literature can play in perfecting a democracy, but it also talks, about, this is a one where he talks about politics, where he talks about uh, the founders and what he sees as their uh, failure uh, uh, to live up to uh, their ideals at a time where he thought that they should have expressed more courage along those fronts. Debatable position, but that was Elson's position. Uh, Mark mentioned three days before the shooting or, or Juneteenth, the shorter earlier version that was published in 1999. One of my favorite quotes is when I believe it's, it's Hickman in the, in the Senate chamber when he's watching Bliss, who's recreated himself as this guy called uh, Adam Sunraider, right? He's passing for white. And he's actually saying things that are race baiting. Okay, he's playing the, he's playing the race card. And, but he's doing it in a way where it's it's clear that this guy didn't learn this in New England, even though he passes himself off as a New Englander. He learned this in the South. Uh, but the good things that he's doing and the way he's expressing himself, and he puts it this way, he says, look at him. He's got them, other senators, he's got them caught between what they profess to believe and what they feel they can't do without. Doesn't that describe our political moment today? what they profess to believe. There are very few people in the United States who are gonna say out loud, they don't believe all men are created equal. Okay, so let's just deal with decent Americans. Most of the 333 million believe in equality, believe in rights, okay? 
But then there's this, there's the psychological component, right? That's the emotive, the passionate, the, the visceral part. And what they feel they can't do without. That's part of politics too. That's what get that's what seeps its way into consent. And that's what decent politicians, if not statesmen, need to grapple with, not just our ideals, but people where they're at in, in the thick of it, in this tussle between our noblest ideals. And what I feel like I'm gonna to have to give up if I allow those ideals uh, and insist that those ideals apply to everybody here. Uh, that's, that's where we're at politically. And so essay, th these essays, I mean, I think they almost all of them speak to these things. I would tell someone if they buy this book, uh, just plop down anywhere. <laughs> and if you could go two pages and not be interested in what you're reading, fine. Skip, skip ahead or go, or go back and, and, and start with something new. Yeah, that's great. The, the one that I'll throw out there, just because I think it makes a great companion to the little man essay, is an essay uh, from much earlier called The World and the Jug. Oh, yeah. Which is a response to um, Irving Howe, who had a kind of critique of Ellison on the basis of what he understood to be uh, the proper Black American tradition. And yeah. um, Ellison just unleashes it's it's uh it's a remarkable essay because it's it's very emotional not not irrational but just you you can tell that Howe's essay really struck a chord and and he he responds in a very in a very kind of interesting uh way and it and it relates a lot of the same themes that we've we've already talked about Lucas you you just mentioned a, a connection you know to to why Ellison you know, is important in speaking to our own times. Mark, do you want to add add anything and just sort of what what you think kind of our contemporary con cultural world might might learn from from Ellison? I will. You know, as 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 hard edged as Ellison was, and and the debate with Irving Howe is a great example of that. I mean, he could give as as good as anybody when when he had to. Ellison is finally he talks about the the moral heart. Of America, and and for him, we see that most fundamentally in Huck and Jim on that raft going down, going down that river from north to south, and the the black man and the white boy, the father and the son, those things that we cannot live without, but that America is trying to split asunder. For him, it is ultimately about acceptance and understanding and patience, and and as as political and and cultural as Ellison is, it is ultimately about love for Ellison. And if there's one thing he would he would emphasize today, it would be uh, kind of King's message that, that we have far more in common than what than what separates us. And and that's the the unity within the diversity, the e pluribus unum that he makes so much of. We we are unified in our diversity. The very uh, multiplicity of America is what brings us together. And I think he would say this is a moment when we've, we're a little out of balance in diversity and unity. And this is a good time to recognize what, what really holds us together as, as loving human beings. Oh, that's a great, great place to, to end on. Well, I'm really glad I could put uh, the band back together as it were, you two. And uh, so Mark, thanks a lot for being here. Thank you so much, Flag Lucas. This this was great fun. God. Yeah, Lucas, thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast. Fabulous. Yeah, great to reconnect with you, Flag, and with Mark. And uh, yeah, we got uh, we shouldn't let too much more uh, time pass before we uh, do this in person somehow. Yeah, that sounds great.
You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest. Yeah.